You're listening to a new sermon series from Sojourn Church Carlisle, entitled All in the Family. Over the next few weeks, we'll be sharing how to cultivate a strong relationship with God through managing our finances, as well as maintaining strong relational dynamics in both familial and non-familial contexts. We hope that this series will give a clear vision and a much deeper appreciation of how God is calling each of us to become faithful stewards of our finances, of our families, and of our friendships. Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. I promise you that I feel better than my voice sounds. Um, Just having some... uh, Throat pains. My daughter had a basketball game yesterday, and I think I was yelling a little too much. So they won, though. So praise God. Uh, My name is James Fields. Uh, It's a joy, honor, and privilege to be with you this morning. I serve here as one of the pastors here at Soldier in Carlisle, um, and I am indeed uh, honored to be with you this morning. Um, If you're visiting with us for the first time, we invite you to take one of the cards you can see in front of you and fill it out. Um, We want to know that you're here and with us. Um, We want to know how we can be praying for you and serving for you in the coming days and weeks. This morning, we're going to continue in our series called Desecrated. Desecrated is a series that's based on the theme of the faces of sin. And our hope and our goal through going through this series is, I hope and I pray, that God will build us into a Christ-honoring community that actively grows in our hatred towards sin and learns to humbly confess our sins to God and to one another. Let me say that again. My, my hope for this is that we will, God would build us, he would shape us, he would form us into a Christ-honoring community that actively grows in our hatred towards sin and allow us to learn how to humbly confess our sins to God and to one another. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you, and we do love you for this day you've given us. We ask, as always, Lord, you would take the little I have and make much of it. Glorify yourself as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll be back. In my opinion, it is one of the most terrifying lines in all of Cinematic history, spoken from the lips of Arnold Schwarzenegger, who plays in the iconic movie, The Terminator. The premise of the movie is simple. Arnold Schwarzenegger is an android assassin that is sent from the future as a bounty hunter. He is sent to kill an unexpected suspect, Sarah Connor. But the problem is that this futuristic Android is covered in human flesh. So while it looks like he's a normal human being, he really is not. Therefore, simple humanistic solutions don't apply to him. Bullets, guns, jail, security guards, even more policemen. You know, at one point in the movie... Sarah is tired of trying to fight this android on her own, so she looks to go to a local police station. At the time, the police station has over 50 police officers present in the building. 
And the policeman encourages her to lay her head on the pillow and to go to sleep. She's not even, she's not able to find comfort even while in the police station and even while being surrounded by 40 to 50 policemen. Why? Well, because these police officers are underestimating the power of the Terminator. You know, in a similar way, we too can underestimate the power, the purpose, and the presence of sin in our own lives. So here's our theme for today. Don't underestimate the power, the presence, and the purpose of sin in our lives. Last week, we put sin on trial by examining the nature of sin in the following ways. We looked at the character of sin, the consequences of sin, and the compassion of our God. This week, we are going to discuss the nature of sin by looking at the hiddenness of sin, the power of sin, and the hope over sin. Look with me in verse 7 in particular to identify the hiddenness of sin. Verse 7 says it this way. If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Notice the personification of sin. Sin is hidden Because sin likes to hide itself. Sin crouches because it is coiled up. It's much like a coiled snake. I don't like snakes. I don't know why I moved to Kentucky. I have yet to see one. Lord, help me not to see one while I'm here. I pray. And if you've seen one, don't tell me you saw it. I want to, in my mind, imagine that they don't exist here. But sin crouches because it's coiled. It's much like a a coiled up snake that is wrapped up in itself. Looks much smaller than it actually is. Sin crouches because it's coiled. It's much like a prowling tiger who is actively hunting its prey. Staying low. Being stealthy. It's like a soldier waiting to take over an unexpected enemy. It's hidden. Can't quite see it, but it's there. It's my favorite one. It's much like a flicker of dynamite. It's the flicker of a dynamite flame before it actually explodes. Everything looks good. Everything looks calm. And so that flame reaches a dynamite. You see, sin is characterized much like its master, Satan. Sin is characterized as being hidden. It's characterized as being subdued. It's characterized as being unsuspecting. Now, you remember those words that were used in Genesis 3.1 about the serpent? Remember what it said? It says, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Again, Satan doesn't come to tempt Adam and Eve in his own persona. He comes in disguise. He comes in hidden form. Or don't you remember how Peter, who you know Peter knows something about being tempted by the devil. 
This is how Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8 talks about and describes the devil. He says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. See, here we not only witness the nature of sin, we also witness the progression of sin. Look with me at verses 3 to 5. It says this, in the course of time, Cain prepared some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented an offering to some, uh, excuse me, to God, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but the Lord did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Notice with me the progression of sin. His frustration turns into anger. His anger evolves into jealousy. But then his jealousy is manifested into hatred, and his unresolved hatred eventually leads to murder. What's the origin of Cain's desire to murder his brother? Look with me in verse 6. It says this, The Lord has regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. And Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. But what does it mean that Cain, that God disregarded Cain's sacrifice but accepted Abel's? Let me give you a couple of examples or a couple of things to think through. Here are some possible reasons for this. Number one, it was the quality of the gift. Some theologians and some people argue that Cain didn't give his absolute best offering to God. He gave God the worst of his crops while Abel gave the best from his flock. In other words, Cain withheld the best portions for himself. That's one option we can look at for why he was so despondent. Another option is this, the carelessness of the gift. Now, Cain didn't provide the mandated offering that God required. That Cain just missed the mark. I think those two options are very viable, but this, the third option is what I believe is the reason why Cain became so despondent in this passage. It's the jealousy of the gift. The jealousy of the gift. And here's what I'm saying here, that Cain's heart was not right before God. That Cain's heart was not right before God. I believe that Cain was jealous that Abel, that Abel uh, found favor with God with his gift because honestly, at this point of history, the only thing that men were required to eat was not the fat of animals or the flesh of animals. At this time in history, all men and animals were created to eat vegetables, to eat fruit. Meaning that there was no need to eat meat. And Cain brought to God the main food, the main substance, the most important thing to be eaten. Don't believe me? Look with me. Go back with me. Genesis 1.29. Remember what God says in his creation? He says these words. He says, God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. And he goes on to say, not just for you, but also for the animals. In Genesis 9, 3, after the flood, we have these words. 
After Adam comes out of the ark, he says, every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. So could it be possibly be that Cain, who brought to God the very best substance he could possibly do? A lot of times when we think of this passage, we think that Abel probably had the most desirable, most important job, but that's not necessarily true. Cain was a worker of the ground. He was a worker of the fields, and he brought, honestly, what he thought was most important to God. But here's the problem. God didn't think so. How do we know that God, Cain's heart was not right before God? First, we know that Cain's heart, was right, what, Cain's heart wasn't right before God because God couldn't and wouldn't accept his offering. Remember, we said this last week uh, in Genesis 3, that when sin entered the world, sin changed everything but God. Remember that? That, that when, when sin entered the world, the world literally went from upside down, right side up, excuse me, right, right, uh, we went from right side up to upside down. Everything literally got flipped on its head. Everybody was doing things that they normally wouldn't do. Adam and Eve were found hiding behind some twig leaves. They're blaming each other. They're fighting with each other. And in the midst of all of that, God comes as he does every single day, walking in the cool of the day. This is a good reminder for us that, listen, every sin changed everything except for our God. And our God, as we talked about last week, he's immutable. He's unchanging. God can't change because there's nothing that needs to be changed in him. He is the essence of perfection. He is the epitome of beauty. And he has no need to change. I hope that encourages you this morning. I hope that encourages you to know that your God does not need to change. He doesn't, he never rolls out of the wrong side of the bed. He's never hungry, nor does he sleep. He never gets tired, nor does he get weary. Your God does not need to change. He is good every single morning and every single day. Through our highs and through our lows, through our suffering, through our joys, through our plenty and our wants, God does not need to change. And that is the best news that any of us can hear this morning. Amen? 1 John 3.12 puts it this way. It says, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. She came, was frustrated and despondent because God had rejected his offering. And I think we need to put a pause button here and just take a time of self-reflection. Where in your life has disappointment in life circumstances caused you to think differently about your God? Where in your life have circumstances caused you to think differently about our God? Very important to question to consider because as we always say, and as we encourage others, and I encourage you not to let our circumstances define the character of God. Life can't, God can't be good only when things are good. 
Because that means that God is only good when your life is going good. And God can't be bad when your life is bad. That means that there's no hope that he can provide. God is who he says he is. And he doesn't change because he doesn't need to change. He is perfect and he is holy. He's altogether righteous. I love this because God, the warning that God gives Cain also is a warning for us. That whenever we feel downcast or whenever we feel alone or isolated, and listen to me, those emotions are legitimate emotions to have. But but whenever we feel downcast, alone, or isolated, God is warning us to be careful. Because when we get to that place, we're at a fork in the road. That either we can allow that time of feeling downcast, alone, and isolated lead us into greater relationship with God. Or we can allow our emotions, the, the, the aloneness, the isolation to lead us away from our God. I had Cain in my office counseling him, this is what I would say to Cain. I would say, Cain, take ownership of your sin. Stop blaming God. Stop blaming Abel and everyone else. And Cain, simply say these words, I'm miserable because of my own sin. My own sin is making me miserable. There's a need at this moment for Cain to take ownership of his emotions before God who cares for him, who loves him, and who wants to seek his redemption. Let's look how Cain responds in his disappointment. He responds in his disappointment by giving God an offering. Theologians refer to this offering as a dedication offering. A dedication offering was, was, uh, it was a symbol used to express one's full allegiance and dedication to the Lord himself. In other words, it was a symbol used to give oneself away to another. Now, I know I can't fully uh, give you a perfect analogy of what this looks like, but a modern analogy of what this dedication uh, offering would look like is one's wedding ring. You see, the ring is a symbol. It is a symbol or a token of giving one's allegiance to someone else, namely your spouse. So let me ask, what happens if the person you're giving the ring to is caught in an adulterous affair the night before your wedding? Well, naturally, hopefully, prayerfully, Possibly the wedding would be off. But why? Why would you cancel your wedding? Well, the person's vows at that point are meaningless. They are void. They are empty. Because the person's behavior demonstrates that they aren't willing to give up their all to the other by remaining monogamous. You see, here's the problem that God found with Cain. Cain wanted all of God, but Cain didn't want to give his all to God. (laughs) Here's the problem in that situation, right? You you want all of me, but, but you won't give me all of you. And if that's the case, then forget it. 
You can't have a relationship. You can't have a covenantal relationship if you're not willing to give me your all. Now, if we as humans will do this, if we as humans will deny someone's plea or desire to be married to us as who has shown themselves not to be faithful to us before we get married, if, if we are willing to, this, to do this, doesn't God also have the right to do the same? And when we are trying to pursue God in a half-hearted way, what we're saying to God is that I want your favor and I want your blessing in my life, but I don't want you, God, to control my life. I want to live my life my own way, yet be blessed by you. Church family, it's a good reminder for us of how sin is so dangerous. Why is sin so dangerous? Why should it be avoided? Sin is dangerous because sin is deceptive. It appears so much more differently than it really is. You know, I'm not much of a huntsman, but I like, <laughs> I enjoy going to National Geographic and living my life vicariously through those who hunt. And one of the greatest things that I love to watch is how uh, huntsmen hunt wolves. Um, it's an old technique, but it works. What they do is they will get a piece of raw meat and then they will put a knife or a sharp object within the meat unexpectedly. So they will put it out there and invite the wolf to go and eat it. And as the wolf goes and eats the meat, it, and it unknown to itself inevitably ends up cutting its tongue while eating the meat. But the wolf is so hungry that as he gobbles up the meat and he starts licking up the blood, he's typically not only licking up the blood of the meat, he's also licking up his own blood. And the wolf actually ends up dying while drinking up its own blood. Remember, sin always looks much safer than it really is. Sin always appears so much differently then it really is. But sin, unrepented sin, will always and eventually destroy your life. Why is this important to know? Well, because Abel's death began with Cain's despondency. You hear that? Abel's death began with Cain's despondency. In other words, every grudge that we have, every grudge is actually murder in a little ball. Every adulterous affair starts off as a little leaven of lust. Every self-pity is really idolatry in disguise. And every envy desires to become Robbery. And here's the Bible's warning to us. The Bible instructs us to confess our sins. The Bible instructs us to repent of our sins. The Bible even instruct, instructs us at times to run away from our sins. 
But we're never, ever, ever called within the Bible to play with our sin. You know, sin comes and says, I'll just come over here and stay in the corner of your life. I I won't make a big mess. (laughs) I'll just be here if you need me. Right? You know, you, you know, you know your kids are gonna do something eventually. You gotta, you know, it's okay to have that little anger right there. It's okay. It's a good reminder for us that sin remains hidden because it always overpromises and underdelivers. You know, me and my wife got a chuckle looking at Instagram the other day. There was a kid who uh, went to preschool and uh, took a ring, his mom's ring, out of her jewelry box and took it to propose to uh, this little girl. <laughs> and uh, I, I was laughing at my wife because I said, babe, I did the same thing when I was a kid. I got, I got spanked pretty good for that. But I remember that. I remember having a crush on this little girl in my preschool class. And preschoolers, please don't do this. Um, parents, hide your rings, please. I'm going to share the story. And I remember I had a little crush on this little girl. And I said, man, I, I think I want to marry her. Like, oh, my gosh. You know, so I go in my mom's room before school and I pick out one of the rings that maybe she wouldn't miss, you know, and, and wouldn't see. Got it. And by God's grace, as I was getting out the car, I put it in my pocket and my hand was in my pocket. So I was like, all right, bye, mom. Have a good day. And as I got out, I reached my hand out the pocket and there goes the ring. And my mom's like, what is that? And I'm like, I don't know how I got there. You know, the enticement of sin is like a preschooler proposing to another preschooler with a stolen ring from his mother. <laughs> it, 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 it's all promise but no commitment. That's the essence of sin. It's all promise. It'll promise you the world. It'll tell you that you get to go places that you've never gone. It tells you you get to do things that you never thought you could do. You can be a more important person. It has all the promise, no commitment. How do we know that God's heart was not right before God? First, we know it because God rejected the gift, but secondly, we know it because we can trust that God Almighty knows the difference between true and false worship. (laughs) Remember we said that? Sin affected everything except for our God. If God doesn't accept something, it's for a reason. And not just for a reason, it's for a right reason. The problem isn't with God. The problem is with sin. I love how Isaiah 29, 13 puts it. It says, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules. But they have been taught. I love this because it reminds us that love without obedience is only manipulation. That love without obedience is only manipulation. And obedience without love is only simply idolatry. One of the favorite books that I love to read to my kids is a book called Halfway Herbert. I don't know if you've ever seen this book. It's an excellent book written by Pastor 
author and theologian Francis Chan. But in the book, it's about a kid named Herbert who does everything in his life halfway. So in the book, you see him with his teeth. Half of his teeth are uh, dirty and, and crooked, and then half his teeth are like straight and, and white and beautiful. He has one shoe tied and one shoe untied, right? Everything in his life is halfway. Everything. There, there's no, nothing whole in his life. This book reminds me of Cain. Cain in this story is a half-hearted person. And he's okay with a half-hearted religion. I pray and I ask that as God redeems and restores us as his church and as his people, as his children, that we would not be half-hearted people. Love how John Owens puts it. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now, some of you may be thinking, man, I haven't died yet, right? But listen, it's not a quick death. It's not always a quick death. Sometimes it's that slow, methodical death, much like a wolf eating raw meat with a knife inside of it. So what is your point, Pastor Fields? What are you trying to tell us? What what do you want from us? This is what I want. I want you to know, and I want you to hear the warning that God has for us today, is we to, to have a desire to grow in our hatred towards sin so much that we learn and we desire not to play with sin. But we flee from it. We avoid it. We pray against it. And by God's grace and his mercy, we never, ever submit to it. What's the solution? The solution ultimately is found in Jesus. But the solution is also in you submitting to the Lordship of Christ in your life, to the grace of God in your life, and not to give sin any place in your life. Love how Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 puts it. It says, therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that laid before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look with me at once again at verse 7 to identify not just the hiddenness of sin, but also the power of sin. Notice how God describes sin. He not only says it's hidden, but he says this about sin. He says, its desire is for you. Its desire is for you. Notice the animalistic nature of sin. Notice here that sin has an appetite. Notice here that sin wants to be fed. So so what is God doing here? Is he trying to incite fear into us? No, no, he's not trying to incite fear into us. He's trying to incite wisdom into us. God is saying, Cain, be careful. Cain, be careful because sin is never done with you even when you are done with it. 
Its desire is for you, for your destruction, for your humiliation. Love how the old folks said it. The old preachers, black preachers used to say it this way, is that sin will always take you further than you want to go. It would always keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will always convince you to do things that you normally wouldn't do. So true. So true. Sin will always take you farther than you actually want it to go. You start off with that little thing in the corner that says, oh, I'll be fine here. But what sin actually wants to do is to rule over you, to control you. James 1.15 describes it this way. It says, but each of you is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Gives birth to death. So what's the power of sin? What do we see here? That the power, what is the power of sin? The power of sin is this, is that sin has an addictive power. It has an addictive power. Sin is not simply done with you once you're done with it. It seeks to devour and consume you. Consume you. It wants to eat you up. Sin has its own mind, its own agenda, and its own desire beyond what you want to do yourself. Let me put it another way. Just like you might have plans with your sins, right? Sin also has plans for you. And again, those plans are not going to be known and seen up front. They're hidden. They're subtle. They're deceptive. Now, Again, I said sin has an addictive power, but I do want to remind us that every addiction is not sin. Every addiction is not sin, but all sins are addictions. Every addiction is not sin, but all sins are addictions. Let me give you a quick example. I love biting my nails. Now, I've been doing that since I was a little kid, and I just, I'm, I'm 40 now and still doing it. I pray that before God takes me to glory, I'll learn not to do this habit, and it's addiction, but it is an addiction that I have. Now, it's not necessarily sin for me to bite my nails, but it's just a really, really bad habit. Notice with me that our sins aren't ordinary. At the core of our sin lies a monster, lies a monster. I love how Tim Keller says this. He says, we want to believe that ordinary people can't do monstrous things. We want to believe that only monstrous monstrous people can do monstrous things, but that's not true. That's not true. So where can we find evidence of this in our society? Well, listen, I'm not going to say where can we find it. Where can't we find this in evidence within society? I read something two weeks ago that brought me to tears, and I'm going to share it with you, and I'm going to try to cover up some of the language in here, because I know we have some younger ears and things of that nature. But on February 5th, 2022, Patrick Riley of the New York Times wrote this thing. He says, a Michigan mom whose three-year-old daughter was found 
in a trash bag. She told investigators that SpongeBob ordered her to um, hurt her daughter or she would face hurt herself. Justine Johnson, 22, allegedly harmed her daughter, Sutton Moser, multiple times on September 16th, two days after the child's third birthday, before putting her remains in a bag, a trash bag. She was hallucinating due to weeks of heroin withdrawals and lack of sleep. She's charged with felony murder and first-degree child abuse. Remember, our sins aren't ordinary. (laughs) And at the core of our sins truly does lie a monster. Well, where's the hope? Thus far, we've talked about the hiddenness of sin. We've talked about the power of sin. But next, let's talk about and evaluate the hope over sin. Look with me again in verse 7 here. As again, God provides his words of what sin is and what it means in our lives. Verse 7 reads, if you do what is right and don't, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door Its desire is for you, but here's the caveat, but you must rule over it. You must rule over it. I love this. Love this verse because it does provide us with so much hope. Look with me in verses 9 and 10 to see the verse aspect of hope from this verse. It says, then the Lord God, the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's guardian? Then he, then he, God said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Notice here that God questions Cain much like he did his father, Adam. But instead of asking, where are you? The question that he asked to Adam He asked Cain a different question. He says, where is your brother? Where is your brother? You see, unlike Adam, God doesn't just ask where Abel is. He also identifies to Cain where he is. Look with me at verse 10 again. He says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. This is a very, very important language here, and I wish we had more time to unpack it. But I'm going to try to do the Cliff Notes version for us this morning. Notice with me what God says. He says, Abel's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And in the midst of Cain's unwillingness to repent, in the midst of Cain's stubbornness of heart, God takes God takes Cain to the blood of his brother. What's so important about this? Why is it so important that God points to the blood of Abel? Well, again, God's response reflects his character. Remember we said it earlier that sin changed everything except for God. And here God is reminding us that when a human being is killed, although it may not mean anything to us, it speaks to God. Because that person was made in his image and according to his likeness, and thereby they are deemed valuable before God as their creator. Our God is always for peace. He's always for harmony. He's always for love. 
He's always for the goodness of his creation, even and especially when we are not. So what does it mean that Abel's blood is crying out from the ground? Why does it matter? It matters because all human blood cries out to God for justice. I hope you hear me on this. All human blood cries out to our God for justice. Why does the life of Breonna Taylor matter? Why does the life of George Floyd matter? Why does the matter of Sutton Moser, that three-year-old girl from Michigan, matter? It matters because it matters to our God. It matters because they are made in the image and likeness of our God. It matters because blood, their blood speaks to our God. One of my favorite verses growing up is in Philippians 1.29. Philippians 1.29 says it this way. It says, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. But to suffer for him. It's been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. You know, I used to think that suffering was the antidote to everything. <laughs> I used to think that was the, 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 the catalyst to really make Christians grow in their faith. Like, listen, man, if you want to grow in your faith, just, just experience suffering. Just experience suffering, and you'll learn God's provision in the midst of that suffering, and everything will be okay. But listen, <laughs> suffering isn't necessarily the antidote. It's how you suffer that matters. It's what you do with your suffering that matters. Remember we said earlier that, that when, when suffering happens in our lives, it's like being a fork in the road that either we draw closer to God or we draw away from God. And every point of suffering, we have to make the choice of how we're going to endure that suffering. Are we going to endure it as one who's a child of the king? Or are we going to try to make our own way? Do our own thing. Live in our own wisdom. We see here that Abel was the first martyr, but there will be many others who follow in the footsteps of our brother Abel. Abel was the first man who was killed as a righteous man, but he wouldn't be the last. Joseph was persecuted, hated, and left for dead by his brothers in a hollow pit. David was hated and persecuted by Saul. Nathan the prophet would confront David in his own sin with the blood of Uriah. And our brother Stephen, the first deacon, was one part of the, the first martyr from the New Testament, was hated and stoned by his own Jewish brethren. But listen, there is only one who is all-sufficient and who can be the all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. And listen, his name is Jesus. It's a good reminder for us that Jesus is not just good. Jesus is perfect. There's no flaw in him. And as much as the God of the Old Testament need not change, in the same way there's nothing in the character, the person, or decision-making of Jesus that doesn't speak of his flawless character. Hebrews 12, 22 puts it this way. 
and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, and just as Abel's blood cries out, Jesus' blood eternally cries out to God that his sacrifice has fully pardoned us from his wrath, from God's wrath, and has fully pardoned us from our sins. All blood says to God, in the name of justice, we seek vengeance. But only Jesus' blood says to God, in the name of justice, draw near to them, save them, love them, counsel them, care for them, provide for them. Why is that? Because it's only by Jesus' blood that our sins have been fully and eternally pardoned. And it's only by Jesus' blood that we have forgiveness of our sins. I think the 1865 hymn writer had it right, Elvina Hall, when she wrote these iconic words, Jesus paid it all. (laughs) All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it. White as snow. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your blood. We thank you, God, that our hope, only hope in this world, is seen through a bloody cross and empty tomb. We thank you that this is not just a figment of our imagination. It's the reality that we live in each and every day. Oh, how we love you. Oh, how we're thankful for you. God, I pray over everyone in the sound of my voice and even those listening at home. I pray, God, that you would allow us to confess our sins to you now, those that we willfully know about and even those that maybe we don't even know about that are, that are a part of our life that maybe we don't know, they're hidden. God, I do pray that you would relinquish, you would subdue the power of sin in our life through confession and repentance. Father, may your work, may your purpose be seen and manifested in each of our lives. Grow us towards a greater hatred towards sin. Grow us towards a more intimacy, more intimacy towards you and also towards one another. We ask that you would do this in the mighty and strong name of Jesus. Amen. Every week we have the opportunity to celebrate communion together. We're going to do that together now. So if you want to take the bread and the wine that uh, was placed in the pews before you. This juice is not just um, juice that we drink. It's juice that reminds us of the sacrifice of our Savior. It reminds us that Jesus' blood has eternally pardoned us from our sins and that his broken body was broken so that we might find newness of life in our God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, and blessed it and said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Let us eat of that bread together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said to them, drink from it, all of you. It's the blood of my new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us drink of that cup together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and preaching of his word. Amen? Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening.
We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.